This recording has been produced by Christchurch, Jerusalem. For more information, visit us at cmj-israel.org. Okay, welcome. Um, Aaron is uh, a long way away in Vancouver, apparently, so his voice doesn't stretch that far. Um, I I should be uh, taking us through um, most of Acts chapter 8 this evening. But before we start, Harry, would you like to uh, give this time to the Lord and ask, ask for his spirit to lead us? Heavenly Father, we rejoice in the presence of the saints. We rejoice even more before you in your presence. Thank you. Uh, as we have gathered, Lord, I think uh, most of us here, for your sake and for your name's sake, we, we know and believe that we ask for your educational aid and help. Open our ears that we may hear. Open our minds and hearts that we may understand. And give us hands and feet and uh, bodies to run to do your will. Yes. You especially bless, Lord, our brother Neville. Bless him in leading, bless him in hearing, bless him in speaking and praying. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay. So, I'd say we're, we're on, just started Acts chapter 8 uh, last week, and we're going to continue that this week. Um, as a reminder, we're looking at the Acts of the Apostles, but in particular, the Acts of the Holy Spirit, with a focus on how the Spirit works and the things he does. Um, uh, we're going to collect these thoughts out right at the end and do a review. We had a, a time in the very first session looking at the, uh, what we thought the Scriptures told us of how the Spirit works and the things he does. And... We will have, by the time we get to the end of the book of Acts, we will have learned a few more things, and so we can do a, a retrospective comparison then. Okay. I think by, um, we'll read through in our normal style. Actually, we'll, we'll start from the beginning of chapter 8, just for the context, because I, I will pick up on that as well. So we'll do it in our normal way, one verse each, going in rotation, whatever uh, version you have, that's fine. And I'll start off. And Saul approved of his execution, that is Stephen's execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Mm -hmm. They therefore that were scattered aboard went about preaching the word. Philip went down to a city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. When the, when the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a certain man called Simon, who previously practiced mm -hmm. sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming he was someone great. To whom they all gave heed, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. 
They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as, for as yet it was only none of them, only they had been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on him and they received the Holy Spirit. But Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on the apostles' hands. He offered them money and said, Give me also this ability so that everyone in whom I may lay my hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered, May your money perish with you, because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent therefore of this your wickedness, and pray God if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven to you. For I perceive that thou art in the gall of business and in bound of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray to the Lord for me, so that nothing you have said may happen to me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the Gospels to many villages of the Samaritans. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship. And on his way home was sitting in his chariot, reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. And the spirit said unto Philip, Go near and join thyself to this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? Phillips asked. But how can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me? So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the passage of scripture that Enoch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shear is silent, so he did not open his mouth. <coughs> In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. So the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you of whom does the prophet say this, of himself or of some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. 
And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord <coughs> carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Thank you. Just if anyone's a bit surprised what happened to verse 37, some of the modern translations, modern versions don't have it in, or have it in as a footnote. Yeah, Ling Ling, it's probably in your, your scriptures there, the old, older versions. Anyway, so I think we uh, covered up to um, verse 8 uh, last week, but I, I will just recap a little bit starting at the, the beginning of the chapter 8. Um, so the context of this is... Uh, there has been persecution, I mean, imprisonment and threats. And up to chapter 7, it's been directed at the apostles and the leaders, you know, Peter and John and, and those people. Um, and it's good to see that they were leading from the front in that respect. Um, but now, after Stephen's death, uh, which is the, just at the end of there, chapter 7 there, we read that Saul is putting in prison whoever he can lay hands on. And the effect was a diaspora. In fact, the word scattering that uh, I have in my translation, maybe that you have, is, is the Greek word diaspero, which, which means uh, diaspora. So what we have here is that because of the uh, persecution, we have a, a diaspora of the Christians among the Jews. And uh, just, uh, I'm going to quickly hop forward and read another verse just to tell you uh, the extent of it. Uh, we are told that they went, as part of this persecution, they went as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. So this is in Acts chapter 11, verse 19. It says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen travelled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except the Jews. So it was quite a significant thing. But the apostles stayed in Jerusalem. I mean, maybe it was their fame and you know their favour with the people that was uh, helping them. You know, in terms of not being singled out by the, or at least not being having their life threatened. Um, that situation would change in a while. Later on in Acts, we read that even the uh, apostles are uh, martyred. Um, but there we have it. It's, some people think that, um, that the apostles should maybe have scattered, but it's, it's an open question. You know, maybe they felt it was appropriate to prove the, uh, the strength at the heart still in Jerusalem, that, that you know, the heart of the new community wasn't uh, affected by the outbreak of persecution. Uh, but behind all persecution is the enemy of God. And it's easy to see in the hatred, particularly the way in the story of Stephen, we saw it kind of boil over, you know, how they, they bundled him out of the town and stoned him, which they, they had no right to do. You, you really feel that that was an overflow of uh, revenge from the enemy or frustration. But in this case, it backfired spectacularly. Uh, and this is one thing that God specializes in. You know, the enemy plans one thing 
and then you find actually it's a win. You know, the, the, the disciples, because of their obedience and their being guided by the Holy Spirit, actually turn what seems like a terrible situation into a major victory that the gospel was spread and people turned to the Lord. And we, we sometimes overlook the fact that uh, the statement that says, um, now those who were scattered abroad went preaching the word. Now the phrase preaching the word is not really a formal thing, like you know, it's not standing up on a soapbox and like we sometimes imagine people to do. It actually is just a more informal thing about sharing the good news, uh, which everyone can do. And so we, you get the impression here that this, you know, the majority, if not all of them, were doing this just because they were so full of what they had seen and experienced and received uh, in and around Jerusalem. But uh, from, from this point on, from verse 4 or verse 5 on, the focus is on Philip. Uh, and you know, the point I was going to say was that in some ways you would imagine that because the, the persecution was so fierce and, uh, and we get the impression from Paul's own, te own testimony that not just Stephen was killed but there are other people killed by uh, that the Saul of Tarsus was responsible for. And you would have maybe expected people just to keep a low profile or just have a, 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 you know, a low-key way of witnessing. But when we look at what Philip did, that is certainly not his approach. He was definitely not low-key. Now, we know that Luke met Philip because... Uh, we read later on in Acts that Luke and Paul stayed at his house in Caesarea. So I, I will just quickly hop forward and read you the, these verses. So this is in Acts chapter 21, and I'll, I'll read verses 7 to 9. So this is when um, Paul and Luke are coming towards um, Jerusalem, bringing the gift. And it says from verse 7, When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, which is modern-day Akko, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. That's an interesting detail. So, good family to stay with. Um, um, so that was about... 20 plus years after what we are reading in, in this event here. Um, and I have no doubt that Luke picked up maybe some information about what he writes here from that visit. But also he could have, um, you know, the, the way that Acts carries on from that point, uh, we read that there's almost a riot on the Temple Mount and Paul is taken into a captivity or protective custody, should we say, and then ends up in Caesarea. And he's down there for two years. And it, it certainly seems that Luke is around. You know, he, he was with him in Jerusalem and he was with him uh, at the point where he left Caesarea. So I think Luke was also around. And again, maybe the opportunity there for visiting uh, not just Philip, but other disciples. Because we read that Luke was keen on getting the eyewitness testimony 
he relied on that uh, for both the, uh, his, his gospel and, and the book of Acts. He also appears to have been busy learning Hebrew. Um, yeah. Uh, what makes you think that? <laughs> because he writes the most beautiful Hebrew poetry in the first two chapters of Luke. He had to have been exposed to the original. Okay. In my okay. I mean, we um, most people would say that Luke was a Gentile, but actually, the evidence is he, he's quite plausibly a, a Hellenized Jew uh, who maybe had exposure to um, Hebrew just because he was you know, familiar with the uh, inside of a synagogue. Uh, we don't know. But uh, the more I read Luke's Gospel and the Book of Acts, the more I like the guy. <laughs> um, I mean, he, his attention to detail and his care and the topics that he emphasizes um, just have a real appeal to me. Well, he was a doctor, correct? Mm-hmm, yes. Well, that's usually when you're a doctor, you have to be with detail. Yeah. So maybe that's part of it. Yes, and maybe it also helped him when he was talking to people, you know, when he was receiving their oral uh, history, that he could take good notes, you know, he could take personal histories properly and accurately. And he had a bedside manner, so he would yeah. get information from people. Yeah, that helped, really, yeah, yes, yes. Drawing alongside people and making them feel comfortable. Yeah. Now, we read here that uh, uh, Philip goes down to the, uh, a city or the city of Samaria. It doesn't really matter, I mean, uh, and proclaim to them the Christ. Um, now, there are a few things about Samaria that's also worth noting. Um, we know from John's Gospel the statement like Jews have no dealings with Samaritans this comes in John chapter 4 you know, in, in the story about the, the Samaritan woman at the well and there had been a rift between Jews and Samaritans uh, for nearly a thousand years starting from the division of the monarchy the division of the ten tribes in Israel from the um, uh, Jews, uh, from Benjamin and, and Judah and then uh, in about 722 you know the Assyrians overran the uh, that kingdom and besieged Samaria and we read that they had this policy of taking people conquered peoples and just displacing them elsewhere and re bringing in others from elsewhere to settle them it, and it looked like a, a a way of making people taking away their fighting spirit by making them feel rootless and certainly the, we have that account written in, um, in I think it's in, in Kings or in Chronicles, um, as what happened to uh, the area of Samaria. Um, and curious stories about lions eating people and um, the Assyrians thinking that, well, we need to do something about appeasing the gods of the land. So, um, so you know, the, there was a distinction there, and it certainly seems that there was a lot uh, intermarrying, uh, you know, uh, the, the race became mixed. And in the 5th century BC, they built a rival temple on Mount Gerizim. Uh, and we, we know from the story in John chapter 4 that uh, the lady at the well is asking, you know, do we worship the Lord here on this or, or there, you know, where the Jews say. And she's referring to Mount Gerizim. Uh, and then in the, um, in, in the late 2nd century BC, 
the Hasmonean ruler at the time uh, destroyed this temple and devastated Samaria. I mean, not, not a good thing to do, and there were repercussions. But basically, this just increased the animosity, the kind of hatred between the Jews and the Samaritans. But, it's worth pointing out, like the Jews, they were expecting a Messiah. So this is an interesting point of uh, similarity. So we're reading in, in, in this paragraph that the signs and the messages work together. So the signs that Philip was doing and the message that he was giving work together and people paid attention to what he was saying. And it's like the, um, the passage at the end of Mark's Gospel um, where it says that these signs shall follow those who believe. Um, and the, the thing I want to confirm is and that they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them confirming the message by accompanying signs by the signs that followed um, and Philip was uh, by the power of the spirit able to do that and he got a, a very attentive audience But, verse 9, there was a man called Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he was himself somebody great. So, what happened with this Simon? Um, and what is curious about this passage is why... We're focusing on Simon the Magician. I mean, obviously, he was a bit of a tricky case and slightly odd. But I wonder why he's the main focus. Any ideas? Well, that doesn't... Because he's a kind of a, a high-profile figure in that situation, he doesn't mean he needs to be kind of recorded in the scriptures. We can look to today's like people that preach the gospel in the Jewish tongues. They could be false prophets, mm -hmm. these big evangelists on TV. Mm -hmm. yeah. The whole passage here, even before Simon is mentioned, is, emphasizes heavily occultism and the uh, yeah. power that Philip exercised over it. I mean, look, we've got shrieking spirits, not just one. Mm -hmm. This is like pandemonium here, and uh, Simon uh, is involved in this. Probably a good many of these people were his uh, previous patients. Yeah. 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 And it's probably implied, he doesn't say explicitly, but I, I think the text and the story, the narrative implies this is probably a good reason that people were not getting filled with the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, we'll come on to that a little bit because that, that really is an interesting question at the heart of this passage. Uh, on to verse 16. But uh, but clearly we see that the um, they all paid attention to Philip. Oh no, no, sorry. They, they paid attention to Simon, uh, saying that this man has a power of God that's called great, and he had amazed them with his magic. So we read that this, the same phrase applies to both Philip and Simon. 
that the people of Samaria paid attention to what they said. In fact, I, I get a sense of a real hunger amongst these Samaritans for reality. And obviously there was a lot of misleading going on and, and demonization. But they seemed to be ready for Philip's message. There, there was a, a real need in the heart. So, um, There's also a geographical issue here, isn't there? The, we're tracing the gospel going from oh, okay. Judea, yes. Samaria, mm -hmm. and now with Paul, all the ends of the earth. Yeah. Right. So that promise that Jesus makes, or that command that Jesus mm -hmm. makes at the end of Luke and the beginning of Acts, Acts will kind of follow that as a pattern. Yeah. Yes, that's definitely, uh, we're picking up on this pattern that is a, the, that Jesus spoke about of, as the spread of the gospel. But I'm not sure that, you know, you could have talked about the impact amongst the majority of the people rather than singling out Simon. But um, I think we'll probably see a bit later on as we read that why Simon is there. I think it's not just because to demonstrate that sometimes weird stuff happens when you're out on the mission field. It's, it's more than that. Uh, but first of all, I'd like to maybe think about comparing Simon the magician and Philip and come up with some differences between them. I mean, we have the similarity that people um, paid attention to them and uh, you know, we're looking for people, someone to follow. But let's have some contrasts. Probably Simon wasn't preaching Christ to them. Yeah, I think we can be pretty sure about that, yeah. Okay. What would you say maybe about the quality of what they were doing? You know, the signs, the... Well, it says that it is magic. Yeah, so, so kind of... that involves deceit, really, doesn't it? Yeah. Sleight of hand or, or and quite possibly... Um, supernatural power of the wrong kind. Yeah, so... And so he was, you know, perhaps people were being amazed by his, this, the uh, magic he was doing, but it wasn't bringing them any freedom or joy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Whereas when yeah. Philip came, he was preaching the gospel yeah. and, and people were being released. Yes. Yes, the... Yeah, that, that's a really good point. I like that one, because I would say that the, the miracles of that Philip was doing weren't intended to impress, but rather they were, they were to heal, deliver, and transform. I mean, that has a lasting impression, but... It, it, and another thing was that Philip was not looking to take the glory. Like, Simon was really looking to be, appear as someone great, and Philip would have given the glory to, to Jesus and, and, the, and the power of the Spirit, without a doubt. When he said yeah, he wanted to offer them money for the laying on of the hands of the Spirit, then obviously his intention was to do the same thing and yeah. get money for yeah. money. So his motivation was Yes, and yes, as Peter points out, clearly there's something deeply flawed in his motivation, doing it for financial gain. And um, yeah, so Philip's signs were greater and more powerful. And they were genuine yes. and didn't involve, involve deceit. And they were just good for people. You know, the, the healing, the deliverance, <coughs> and the transformed character was just doing good to society. And, and Philip wasn't taking the credit. 
Um, there's, in verse 12, there's just a slight, in my version anyway, there's a slightly odd statement where it says, but when they believed Philip, uh, really were, what they were believing was the, Philip, the, the good news that Philip was preaching. Philip's gospel, in other words. Yeah, and the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. So they were baptized, both men and women. And you'll notice that quite often um, Luke makes a point of mentioning men and women. Um, and I can think of you know, half a dozen occasions where you'll find men and women in the same verse in Acts because he feels it's important to say that the women were involved here. Does it? Yeah. Question How would Simon know about the Holy Spirit? Like, what is going on where he says, uh, says he followed Philip everywhere? Yeah. He was astonished by great signs. Yeah. Oh, yes. and <coughs> he says to receive the Holy Spirit. Well, that was after Peter and John had come and yeah. baptized people and they received the Holy Spirit. That's when. Simon said, oh, I want that. Mm. So I think I'm sure that um, uh, Peter would have been, been giving credit to the Spirit for these miraculous signs. Oh, okay. um, you know, and Philip was not taking credit to himself for, for it, unlike the way that Simon was operating. And, okay, um, and so we read in verse 13, even Simon himself believed. And I think there the word believe is just just dealing with what was apparent. It's not meant to be a profound statement of theology. Um, some people get hung up on saying that, oh, so did he have a saving faith? Uh, no, I think, I, those kind of questions are not really in, intended for this circumstance. I mean, he's, what is just being recounted is that Simon went through the baptism and continued in the company of Philip and you know, was obviously really engaged, particularly in in the signs and wonders that were going on, rather than maybe the whole of the message. Now, uh, moving to verse 14. So the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God. So they sent them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So what, what's really unexpected and about these verses? What's, what's the thing that sticks out like a sore thumb? That the, the hands to be laid on them to get the Holy Spirit. Yeah. You mean... You know, that's not something that happens now. Yeah, yeah yes, Peter and, and um, John came down and, and laid hands on them. Um, well, some, I mean, laying on hands and praying for people to receive the Spirit does happen a bit. Amongst certain uh, kind of uh, denominations. denominations, and if Greek language uh, means anything that it means throughout the New Testament, this is very simply stating that you can be bad, believe and be baptized and not receive the Holy Spirit. Mm. It's it's quite straightforward and literal here. Yeah. You can't really get around it unless you start really doing contortions. Yeah. Yeah. So it's um. And we have the same thing happen, of course, in Acts 19, uh, in Ephesus. Yeah, yeah. Two out of the three cases where we saw people believing a preached gospel and being baptized wound up with them not being filled with the Holy Spirit. Yeah. 
Well, in this case, they, they, it was preaching of the Christ, where in Acts 19 it was of more to do with focused on John the Baptist, wasn't it? The, the baptism of repentance is the one that they, they had embraced. Um, yeah. But yes, the, verse 16 really six, sticks out in the sense that you, from what we have read so far in Acts, you're not expecting uh, this, you know, to happen, that the Spirit had been withheld for some reason. Okay, so... Um, uh, what I want to look at in a bit more detail is possible explanations for why that was. And um, uh, Aria has su suggested one, which maybe can I summarize by saying that the presence of Simon the magician was part of the problem. Are you, are you think maybe... And his, uh, the fruit in his local works. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, there are other possible explanations about the uh, this unexpected turn of events. Uh, any suggestions? Yes, that is put forward. In other words, saying something that Philip missed something out or he didn't preach the gospel fully. You know, maybe missed something out to do with the Holy Spirit. We don't get that impression from this text, but some people might think that was the reason that it didn't... Things didn't go as you would have expected. We've, we've had an explicit statement that Philip was full of the Holy Spirit, yeah. uh, right? Yeah. And so there's no doubt about the fact that he understands this particular hmm. issue. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, that, that's, I, I've heard that mentioned. I, I, I don't hold with it. I don't think it's particularly... I don't think you can uh, find adequate support from it, from the text. So um, there's a, there are, But there are other reasons. Hmm? Oh, that, that Philip didn't preach the gospel fully, that he missed things out, you know, that, that he, he didn't explain properly about the, the coming of the Spirit to the believer and, you know, and what, to, or what the new believers could expect. Could it be because they were not Jewish? Um, First to the Jew, then to the Jew. Yeah. Maybe. It's, um, okay, no. it kind of... Um, that's you're, you're coming on the right track there I think for what I feel is maybe the most significant reason which I would just for the moment say God wanted the apostles and in other words the Jerusalem leadership to be involved mm -hmm. yes um, and we'll, we'll kind of unpack that a little bit more in a, in a few minutes but the, the, there's a fourth one that I've got here but maybe you've not um, uh, come across this before, that God wanted to teach the apostles, especially John, yeah. an important lesson. So let's turn to um, Luke's Gospel, chapter 9. We're going to read what happened there. Uh, so this is Luke, chapter 9, verses 51 to 56. Um, uh, can I have a volunteer to read? Yeah, yeah, thanks. Uh, 
as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem, and he sent messengers on ahead who went into the Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples, James, oh, when the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, did you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them, and they went to another village. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. So what's in the mind of James and John? What Old Testament story is that? Elijah is going into Samaria. Yeah. Um, and there's a, was it, I think two or even three groups of, um, two, two three yeah. groups of soldiers, 50 soldiers were kind of uh, disappeared up in smoke by fire from heaven. Um, so what we're seeing here, and it's rather a nice contrast to make that Jesus says, no, 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 you don't know where this is coming from. You know, this, this, is, this is not the, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, in the way that he's working in Jesus' ministry, to do that kind of thing. But this also shows the hatred that they had for the Samaritans too, even the disciples, you know, the Jewish people. Yeah. That was in their culture. Uh, oh, yeah. You know, I don't know that everybody, it's not true that everybody disliked the Samaritans. They were, they were tolerated by some certain Jewish groups. Mm -hmm. The relations between the Jews and the Samaritans really got bad in the 3rd century and 4th century. And that's sometimes read back into the New Testament. So obviously Jesus maybe thought that they were in the, the household of Israel, the family of Israel, the way that, in which he, would, he included them. Because really they're being included before Paul's conversion, so they're included sort of in the general community of Israel or the Jewish community. It's not making a deal like these are Gentiles. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, some people regard them as a kind of halfway house between Jews and Gentiles, but actually, more commonly, I thought they were regarded as Jews. There were so many streams of Judaism, and just because the Samaritans uh, rejected the prophets and stuck with the first five books principally, they had the Samaritan Pentateuch, didn't mean they stood out because that's what the Sadducees did as well. They, they held only two of the, uh, the Torah as authoritative. Um, yeah, but the, the contrast which is nice to point out is that uh, Jesus prevents um, James and John calling fire out of heaven out of the sense of uh, irritation and, um, uh, yeah, but then what we see is that instead, Peter and John come from Jerusalem and they pray and the Spirit falls from heaven and transforms them. So they, they, they get the fire of the Spirit, which transforms rather than burns up. So it's, the contrast that way is a, a nice point to make, but I don't think it's really the main reason why uh, Paul and John were called from Jerusalem to be involved in this episode. So, um, well, it's a testimony to the community as a whole, understanding the necessity that, that what they saw wasn't happening. We need to call for 
Mm. Yeah. And it would probably have taken a, a few days for the apostles to arrive. You know, it takes a day to walk back and another day to pack your bags and another day to walk there again. Uh, so, you know, Philip would have been left scratching his head wondering, what have I done wrong? You know, what's going on? Um, yeah. Thinking, um, uh, needing help and probably very grateful that um, the, uh, the cavalry arrive from Jerusalem. Okay, I just want to focus, come back to um, that passage to sp speaking about Simon the um, magician. So, I mean, talking about, let's, jumping back to verse 18. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered the money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. I mean, we're not told what Simon saw, but, but presumably, um, the, um, from the examples in Acts, it would have involved you know, speaking in tongues and, or prophesying. Um, uh, and something I just learned from doing this study, that just from these verses, we have an English word, simony, simony which means the buying and selling of spiritual things, particularly ecclesiastical offices. So this is, this is a word in the English language. And there are statutes and laws of England, you know, canon law from the church relates to uh, this sort of thing. And sadly, it was a real problem in the, in the Catholic Church in the 9th and 10th centuries. And also in the, in the Anglican Church, after it split from Rome, it was also a, a big deal, you know, people buying and selling livings. Hmm? Yeah, well, so that's. Well, it, yes, yeah. it's. I mean, we're not free from this by any means, but it's but it's not it's not such a major. Like it was. I mean, it's it's different now. Now you have you you send an evangelist a thousand dollars and he's going to pray for you or something. Well, in the Catholic Church, you could you could light a candle and put money in for the people in. Or you're right, or or. This reflect to the day I saw uh, Pastor Ruven, the Jewish Muslim believers. Yeah. He was talking to a group of people. And some sister said, Hey, Pastor, this is the envelope. We want to give it to you. And he said, No. And I was very, very amazed. Usually, you know, it's, it's a love offering. But pastor so no. I'll tell you, in the Arab Protestant church, pastor yeah. doesn't pray for someone, yeah. they give them money. Yeah. You can't do anything. And mm. I was very it's amazed. Embarrassing. Yeah. Very amazed and impressed. Wow. Yeah. He said no. Yeah. And I, I, feel, I feel it bad enough. One time when I was at the church of the Nativity in Bethlehem, and you're walking down past this place where it all supposed to have happened, and there's just somebody there just taking money off you. I mean, it just it just feels so wrong. You know, just so you can 
either look at or kiss this piece of marble on the floor, and then, you know, here's $10. Yeah. You know, it's, yeah. I went to a church, they had an ATM machine in their church. Mm. They buy the altar. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah. Now I'm in South Carolina, in um, Georgia. That does seem inappropriate. Yes. I mean, the scriptures say, "Get organized, be prepared, and sort <laughs> out." You know, uh, know that Sunday's coming, and lay, lay some money aside, for, and be ready for it. You know, well, not for oh, right, yeah. Oh, I'm in church. I need something for the collection plate. Okay. Jesus' teaching: When you want to give good things. Don't bend your left hand to know what your right hand right. is. Yeah. Oh, Could yeah. it be the reason? Could it be? Yes, I mean, this was in contrast to how the, um, uh, the Sadducees and, and others of that ilk in Jerusalem just uh, advertised their giving. And, and one of the worst things I've heard is that in the treasury, in, in the temple, they had these big boxes which received the collection and they had brass trumpets on them so that when you poured all your loose change into them, people hear by the, by the sound actually how much you are tipping in. And so, so when a poor widow comes along and she has only two little small coins and it makes almost no sound when she puts that in the treasury, Jesus hears it because that rang bells in heaven. And Jesus said, this, this uh, woman will be remembered because she gave out, out of almost nothing all that she had. So, yeah. Um, so there, there were um, errors and um, you know, bad practice going on in and around Jerusalem that Jesus uh, speaks out against. Okay, and talking about speaking out against, verse 20, Peter said to Simon, may your silver perish with you. Now that's a pretty strong thing to say. He says, okay, and may you be dead and your, yeah. <laughs> may you die and your, and your money as well, is it, seems to be what he's saying. So that's, you know, it's definitely um, being forthright with him because he says, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. And he goes on to say, you have ni neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Okay. And this rather points to the fact that people were being baptized a little bit too quickly. That there wasn't uh, much time for preparation or baptism classes yeah. or checking, and, you know, Yes, I mean, that, that would be a lesson to learn from this occasion, to be a bit more circumspect about, you know, baptismal preparation. But, you know, there was a, there was a wave spreading, you know, of, and, the, and the power of the Holy Spirit was coming uh, in a remarkable ways, and there was an urgency about it. You know, so, I mean, I can understand that, you know, it's... Well, how long the person after baptized can their spirit be regenerated? Like be born again? Oh. Usually how? Depends on what kind of you know, situation they can be born again. 
Uh, I'm not quite, I'm not sure I've understood your question. Well, I was just referring to her sister to say, you know, because at that time, nobody teaching them. So they are not really being taught with the, with the truth. And so their spirits was not generated. And that's why they do the things very foolish, childish, and just like you are not baptized yet. Mm -hmm. That's a normal person. I mean, I'm not, not going to set any rules because I'm not really, uh, I mean, not qualified to do that. And I don't think it would be safe anyway. I mean, human beings like rules. Uh, you know, and sometimes you need structures and things just to, for smooth running of church life and administration. But I don't think we need to have particularly a rule about this. In other words, from the time when someone hears the good news to when they ought to be baptized. And this has varied enormously in church history. You know, from you know, from almost instantaneous to almost a lifetime, people being afraid to to be baptised until they're on their deathbed. Uh, but uh, in in the situation, I think that Philip was in, I can understand people wanting you know being done within a few days. You know, because the power of the Spirit was so there and clear and and confirming the message that he, sp he was speaking. In Romania, we have uh, just the opposite. We have the, the pastors uh, are very cautious, which I think you know, we need to be, obviously. Mm -hmm. But uh, we've had instances where, where uh, you know, the worst lady in the village uh, received the Lord and wanted to be baptized and uh, you know, went through instruction by the, the pastor who's a friend of ours. Mm. Yeah, and she was old, and she had been, you know, the prostitute of the town for years, and she'd been, you know, just lived a bad life, and she heard the word and, and received it and wanted to be baptized before she died. And the, the church leaders in that area were all against it. And this friend of ours, he, he actually, well, he's been here, uh, he's part of our foundation, it was in his church. And uh, he came to me and said, Doug, you know, what should I do? I, I want to baptize you. And I said, do it. Yeah. Do it. Why not? And so he went against all these, these other pastors in the area and all and, and uh, baptized her. And she died shortly after that. But uh, the idea is that they think if you wait long enough, you'll be able to see them really have a life change. And, and that may be true. It may not be true. But no matter who, we baptize, we can't read hearts. Yeah. I can't read a heart, you know. And there, the verses in, in Matthew 7, you know, uh, where he says, you know, away from me, I never knew you. I mean, these are these are leaders of a lot of, you know, they're preaching and, and prophesying and everything in his name, casting out demons and all. Uh, I never knew you, you know. It wasn't that you fell away. I never knew you, you know. So as people, we cannot read somebody's heart before baptism. You know, I think it's very important to instruct someone in, in the gospel and the truth, have them question, you know, and, and answer as much as we can. But uh, we can't read people's hearts. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think, uh, you know, in Romania, they do a, a very big disfavor. Uh, you know, you have to be 15 or 16, you have to this, you have to that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they just have... And I think it's a kind of a shame. Yeah. Uh, uh, well, isn't baptism an outward expression of what has happened inside? It's not a saint. Right. Mm. That, that's not what the Book of Acts teaches us. Mm. 
the whole goal of the preaching and changing of minds and then being baptized as a commitment was to receive the Holy Spirit. The, Holy, the reception of the Holy Spirit is the whole point of, of this whole gospel in the book of Acts and elsewhere in the New Testament. And it's clearly not all necessarily concurrent. Spirit can come first. That's, you know, God can do whatever he does, but and that was considered an exception in, in, in Acts 10. It's the reception of the Holy Spirit. It's God's life. Yeah. The life of Christ. Well, what about what about on the Jordan River when John the Baptist was baptizing throngs of people? Well, the Holy Spirit has not come down in that time. Hmm? The Holy Spirit has not come down that time during the John the Baptist. Though explicitly stated that his preaching was in the end he intended that the man would come and would give the Spirit. Yeah. It was all connected. Oh. Yes. Um, um, so it's clear then that the ministry of John the Baptist was a ministry of repentance. He, he, prophetically, he was following in the steps of Elijah, preaching in the spirit and power of Elijah, turning the hearts of the fathers to their children, and the children, you know, and the hearts of the, uh, the foolish to the just. I just think it's God's appointment, what you said. Yeah. Um, it's okay. possible that, um, that there is caution in some denominations or some areas, purely because of this yeah. story, purely because of this, um, this problem. Yeah. yeah. I think you can go either way overboard, right. you know, just throw into the wind and then too much caution. Yeah. Acts 2 does clearly imply that the 3,000 were baptized the same day. Yes, yeah. They weren't going through a catechism here. Right. No, no, no. no. It happened the same day, 3,000. Yes. But at least we have this corrective, both present in this story, and there would have been other ones. In other words, uh, dealing with things that haven't worked out as you would have hoped. And, um, and as we saw, Peter was dealing very strongly with, with Simon. And um, saying he's the Simon responded, This is the wonderful thing. He, he took Peter's message uh, yes. to, at his face value. Oh, okay, um, now, so does Simon repent? This is the question. No, no, he doesn't. The text doesn't say, Yeah, yeah, I would agree that the text doesn't indicate that Simon repented, but he asked for Peter's prayers, which Good in itself, but it's yeah, not right. what uh, I would it's class as repentance. And then the curious thing about this story is that actually we're not told how this situation resolved. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. So it's kind of slightly left hanging there. Um, because really the... Um, uh, the this account is not really, uh, doesn't turn on actually this person of Simon the Magician. Something else is going on here. And I think the key thing is actually the role of the apostles from Jerusalem, the role of Peter and John, and, and how and why they were involved. Um, just as a kind of theological reflection, uh, you know, I mentioned uh, uh, maybe in my introduction, at least I intended to, that the nature of... Um, Acts is sacred history, as uh, Aaron often points out. 
which one of those things implies that although we can rely on Luke particular re accurately recording what we are reading, it doesn't mean that because something was done in such a way at that time means that we have to do that this way now. Or we can't necessarily infer doctrine from a particular event that happened. But in this passage, we do have that and happening in quite a big way. In other words, to do with, is it possible for people to, um, you know, are there two steps for becoming into, entering into Christian, uh, into Christian life through, you know, baptism and then receiving the Spirit? Or is it just one? And a lot of kind of words and ink has been spilt on that, particularly in the 20th century. And the slightly curious thing is that you have two almost kind of opposing groups within the churches uh, that make reference to this passage in Acts 8 to support their practice. So you have the Catholics and the Anglo-Catholics who see precedent in this in terms of the bishop laying hands on the person um, going through a confirmational catechism or whatever it is. And and that being a required aspect to them coming into the fullness of their Christian experience. So that's on, whether, on the other hand, you have the Pentecostals who think that, you know, you need to, it's quite possible that people are going to need a baptism of the Spirit in order to receive the, all the fullness. And you had these, and then there were people in the middle saying, it's not, it's a bit more nuanced than that, you know, it's a bit more complicated and you can't make rules. So, but as I say, a lot of um, energy and time was spent on it. And I remember in the 1970s, just being talked about, talk about this, you know, the, the latter end of the um, charismatic revival amongst the Anglican church, you know, people were talking about it, you know, can you, can you be rebaptized or, you know, have you not, didn't you, didn't you receive the Holy Spirit when you first believed? And, um, but as Ari points out, there are things we have in the scriptures that um, make things, or make it harder to make rules about this. And my favorite one to point out is that we know that Jesus was born of the Spirit, if anyone was born of the Spirit, wasn't he? But the Spirit that was in him came upon him in power when he was baptized in the River Jordan. So up to that point, he hadn't really caused much of a stir you know, until actually the Holy Spirit came on him and then, bang, you know, he goes into the, um, the wilderness and is tempted by Satan and then comes out victorious and it, it then all starts to happen in a powerful way. So he was born of the Spirit, yet he received the, the anointing of the Spirit for power in ministry. His, his baptism by John and Michael it seems to imply that he, in part at least, was doing this to set a human example, yes. even though it may not have been strictly, totally necessary for his unique person. Yeah. Yeah, yes, I know what you're referring to. Yes, yes. I'm wondering whether that's to do with um, righteousness in the, in, in the sense of covenant loyalty. In other words, John the Baptist is in the role of an analogy with Moses, who's bringing the people through the waters in preparing preparation to receive the law from Sinai. And uh, John is doing a parallel thing, bringing the nation through the waters of baptism to prepare the way for the coming of Messiah 
for the new work that Jesus would do by the, by the Spirit. And so Jesus, because he was a member of the Jewish people, submitted himself to the ministry of John the Baptist, and he would be, go through the waters of baptism because everybody did that, just because of who he was. You got any thoughts, David, or is that...? Maybe um, the uh, baptism of John wasn't so much for individual personal sin, but it was calling people uh, to repent on behalf of the nation. <laughs> and uh, as, a, as a sign of repentance and purification, they're, they're going into the water. And so Jesus was uh, repenting uh, for Israel. Mm -hmm. We would repent of the sins of our government, of our society. And that repentance is kind of a key trigger that, would, that brings redemption. There's always that connection between redemption and repentance. And go together like um, cucumbers and sandwiches and cookies, right? <laughs> Allegedly. Yeah. So anyway, so we, and also when you have, uh, when you look at the, the apostles, you know, the, in the, on the day of resurrection in the, uh, in the room, and Jesus appears to them, and we have Luke's account and John's account, and Luke's account says that Jesus opened their minds that they may understand the scriptures, and John's account says, he said, he's, he breathed on them and said, receive now the Holy Spirit. So it certainly, at least to my reading, it seems that they were given an, the gift of the Holy Spirit on that day, on that day of resurrection, by the power of Jesus, but yet they waited seven weeks for the day of Pentecost, for something else to happen, for the power to serve. So again, two events, and, and Aaron also points out that the baptism that the um, early Christians were experiencing was Jewish ritual immersion, and that was a completely a re repeated event all the way through your life. It's, it was necessary. So it's, um, they would be less, uh, less aghast at the idea of the, there being two, two aspects to this coming into a, a full experience of the, um, uh, the Christian life rather than just one. Anyway, that's, but I, I, that's an interesting point because the, these two groups, the, the, the Catholics and the, and the Pentecostals, look to this passage to, as not just an illustration of it, but actually to bolster their point of view that this is the norm of how Christian initiation should be done. Anyway. Yeah, we won't, we won't get on to that. No, we won't get on that because that's a whole different, they have a whole different theological paradigm which uh, they use to justify that. But, and the Catholics believe that an infant can know God, and they don't believe that you're once saved, always saved, that you can have a relationship with God and lose it. So you have to constantly renew your baptismal vows. So the Catholics are huge on having been baptized by the Holy Spirit. It's even millions of Catholic charismatics, right? <coughs> so that somehow, even in their theology, they have uh, people being filled with the Spirit. And really interesting about the uh, Paul, he discovered there are two laws in us. Before we came to the Lord, we are ruled by the law of death and darkness. Mm -hmm. So we get baptized, the law of life activated. So this, which is means the same word with generation to be born again. So the born again spirit in us 
by calling upon the name of Jesus and being baptized, and you shall be saved, which means you can be activated. Should I say that? Well, you're then alive to God <laughs> by, the, by the work of the Spirit within. Uh, but that doesn't mean to say that your frailties and failings are not going to rear their head. And in even the one way of putting it is that even though the old man within you is dead, he just won't lie down. And Paul is very honest in, in Romans, as you know, about that situation. He talks about him very personally. But yes, but the, the power of the Spirit does give us victory in, in all things, that we don't always avail ourselves of it. But anyway, I want to, what I want to do is get on to what I feel is the central reason why this slightly odd or maybe significantly odd turn of events happened. Um, and it's because God wanted the apostles to be involved. And as Ari has pointed out, that there are other occasions, and the, the one that we haven't reached, but we will no doubt reach soon, is when, is when the gospel is going to go and break into the Gentiles. So Peter is called to speak to Cornelius in Caesarea. And that's when the Holy Spirit comes first. And, you know, God had to do something significant and out of sequence just to really make a point, to, to break through the rules that were, you know, the, the habits and understanding that Peter had about uh, the Gentiles and, and what they needed to do to be acceptable to God. So God made them acceptable and the Spirit came and then obviously Peter had to do the catching up exercise. But, but I think here also we've got something odd happening and it's because I think that Peter has been given by Jesus the keys of the kingdom. Um, I'll just quickly read those verses uh, from Matthew 16. Uh, verses uh, 18 and 19. So this is um, in the context of Caesarea Philippi. You probably know the, the story. Um, um, Matthew 16. Um, yeah, so. Uh, and Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, that, that Jesus is uh, the Christ but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Uh, binding and loosing, just to say that that's really effectively giving Peter, uh, God-given authority to make decisions for the church. Um, that's the simplest way to say that. But what Jesus is talking about, and I think it's fair to understand that this idea of Peter being the key holder is that Peter needed to be involved as the, you know, the high-profile leader of this uh, movement, this uh, kingdom of heaven, that he needed to be seen to effectively unlock the door both for the Samaritans and then the Gentiles. So, and but also he was he announced it to the Jews on the day of Pentecost, and so he's here with the uh, the Samaritans. What do you think of the idea that um, 
uh, all of this had to come from Jerusalem. So he had to come from Jerusalem, like from Jerusalem and go forth the law, mm -hmm. you know, right? And before I saw the whole idea of the prophets of redemption mm -hmm. being centered and going forth from Jerusalem. Yes. So would that be a reason for saying that actually it was okay that the 12 apostles stayed in Jerusalem while the rest got scattered? Maybe. Because, okay. And even Paul, in his gospel, he submits himself to Jerusalem and Jerusalem yeah. 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 Jerusalem is the way Jesus resurrected. Yeah. The power. Yeah, I mean, it was where, and Jesus says, you know, it's impossible for a prophet not to die in Jerusalem. Um, it was the center not just because uh, God's name was there, but that's where the opposition was. You know, that's uh, the enemy wanted to make a mess of things and he will go right to the heart to do that. Uh, and another way of talking about this is Paul describes the church as being built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. That's in his letter to the Ephesians. Whereas Philip is usually described as an evangelist or a deacon. Um, so, I mean, this is not a really big point, but it, you know, it, uh, it, it supports the, this idea of Peter being, if you like, the key man when it came to opening the door of the gospel to these major people groups. But the other aspect, this is not always appreciated, is I think the involvement of Peter was important for the unity of the church, for, for the, you know, the fledgling church that we have here, this community of believers, or the way, as it's called. Now, we know because of their history, the Samaritans could easily have split off and become a separate church. You know, there, there would have been an inclination to do that had what happened amongst them not been, in some way, had been disconnected to what was happening in, in Jerusalem. But, so both the Jews in Jerusalem and the Samaritans needed to know that this was the same spirit and hence the same body. They were all the same body. And calling Peter and John from Jerusalem to, to do this gave a very high profile statement that we are all one together. And I think that's, that's uh, I mean, there are, there are a mixture of reasons, but I think this is the, the major one, why just these odd circumstances arose, because um, for the, uh, Peter to be involved in the way he was, and then for people to understand that no early division should arise between the followers of the way in Samaria and the followers of the way in Jerusalem, and out into the diaspora as it came. Um, okay, let's move on quickly to just do the, uh, the story of um, Philip and the, and the Ethiopian eunuch. But, uh, we can probably cover this. We'll, we'll not pause quite so much. And now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south of the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is the desert place. And he arose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship. Uh, just a bit of background here. Gaza was probably the last stop for water before crossing the desert to go to Egypt. So, um, and it, obviously it mentions this is a desert place. Uh, Candace uh, was probably not her personal name. It was a, a dynastic royal title, like Pharaoh, you know, 
and so anyone who was in the role of queen mother of the Ethiopians would have carried that title, Candice. Um, and the eunuch was a court official uh, and who was in charge of all her treasure and he had come to Jerusalem to worship. He was a trusted royal official um, and I think based on other verses we can assume that he was either a Jew or was converted to Judaism as a proselyte because you know we read that passage from um, later on in Acts where it says that the people as a result of the persecution spread all over the place but only speaking to the Jews so I think and, and I'm sure that it would have been pointed out both by Philip and Luke that if this had been a Gentile that that would have been really clear so I think uh, it's reasonable to assume that he was and, and we know that the uh, Jews had migrated as far south as, as Nubia you know the southern part of Egypt that, that wasn't a, a foreign place for the Jewish people in fact there was a large uh, Jewish community set up in Elephantine in the It'd be really interesting to know that language. Yeah. Well, I'm guessing he took the Greek one, but but he may have been. I thought the Ethiopian had been Hellenized. Yeah, yeah, Hebrew. Why would he take Greek? Was there a Greek one at that time? Uh, yes, the Septuagint was written. The Septuagint was uh, um, widely read by the um, the Hellenized group. Uh, Jews around the Mediterranean and certainly in Alexandria. Well, I mean, he's from Ethiopia, right? Mm, yeah. Mm, yeah. Ethiopia was once the Ptolemites territory before Christ. Ptolemites. Yeah, there was a Greek of Greek. Ptolemy. Yeah, yes, the, 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 the Ptolemies. Ptolemy was king. Sounds like I have a stretch. Yeah. This is me, he was Jew and he knows Greek. He's a Jew, maybe in a Hebrew, it's a sister language of Ohio. Yeah. Anyway, and the account goes on to say he's returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. Now, I would guess that he had almost certainly purchased this scroll in Jerusalem because the scrolls of the prophets are not something you took travelling with you. I think he... You know, he was probably a reasonably wealthy person and he had spent a lot of money on one of these scrolls of the prophets. And he had chosen the, the scroll of Isaiah. I say it was very popular. Yeah, yes. And there were all kinds of styles of copying too. It was much more relaxed than the mm. ultimate Masoretic yeah, yeah. resolution. And maybe he was drawn to Isaiah because of a particular passage in Isaiah 56. Let's just... I'll quickly read that, so I'll flip to it. Um, so this is Isaiah 56, verses 3, 4, and 5, where the prophet says, Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I'm a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name, a Yad Vashem, better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. 
So you can see he might have been drawn to the prophet Isaiah for that reason alone, but as David says, it's, it, it was a really popular book. <laughs> and so that's a clear example of the, uh, the prohibition within the Torah towards uh, eunuchs uh, was superseded there. Um, so David, what would you say when people say the scripture contradicts itself? The, I would say that uh, scripture is progressive revelation. Yeah. So what you read about uh, in Deuteronomy may be uh, supplemented or uh, modified. modified by what you read about in Isaiah. Yeah. <laughs> I think we'd agree with that. Not to mention throwing out the entire sacrificial system. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Notice here, just, just a curious detail, that the instructions are now coming from the spirit in verse 29, whereas verse 26 said, an angel of the Lord had said to Philip, da 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 da. Now, I'm, I'm not, maybe an angel means that he had a dream or something like that, or, but, uh, and the spirit is referred to because it's kind of guiding him there and then, you know, just, ah, oh, you know, go down there and catch up with that chariot. And maybe there wouldn't have been a, a big difference in the understanding of that kind of guidance in the minds of the people of those days. But, uh, I mean, I certainly would like to see an angel. Anyway, but there again, will, will I recognize him? Anyway, um, but what's for sure is the spirit gets him to the right place. But I notice that the spirit doesn't tell him what to do. But for everything that follows, Philip doesn't need any more information because it all f overflows from within him. He just wants to uh, share the good news, uh, especially when you've got a prompt from Isaiah chapter 53. But, and the eunuch has a refreshing humility you know, he says, you know, how can I understand unless someone guides me? He's wanting help. But he was an important guy. You know, he, he was a man of authority um, with great responsibility, but yet willing to have, you know, just a chap walking along the road, come up and sit beside him and explain what's going on here. So you get the impression that his heart, you know, the heart of this this eunuch had been prepared by the spirit. So not only did, you know, they are in the right place, physically, was, um, Philip was there, but he was in the right place spiritually to receive what Philip wanted to say. Um, so yeah, so he, not only was his heart prepared, he was reading the key passage and he yeah, was yeah. asking the right question to say and saying about whom ask you does the prophet say this is it about himself or about someone else which is a good question to ask about that passage in the beta for 2000 years scholars yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and pretty well everyone in those days was expecting a powerful and victorious Messiah that would kind of wipe the floor with the Romans and kick them out. And it was Jesus who 
hinted at and sometimes applied these scriptures to himself. You know, these scriptures about having to suffer. So um, we'll, we'll just pick up two of those. Um, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll read them quickly. There's one in Mark, Mark 10, um, 45. Uh, Jesus says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And uh, Luke 22, here is a, a direct uh, allusion to this passage in Isaiah 53. Uh, Luke 22, verse 37. Um, wait, wait a I'm in the wrong chapter. That's why it didn't make sense. Um, for I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me and he was numbered with the transgressors for what is written about me has its fulfillment okay no, no jump, jumping back oh sorry um, he said to them but now let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one for I tell you that the scripture must be fulfilled in me, and he was numbered with the transgressors, which is a quote from Isaiah 53. So Jesus is applying this passage to himself. Um, and the Holy Spirit was not just in control of their meeting, but also of the baptismal opportunity. You know, suddenly they come by this place and, and you know, it says, ah, oh, water. Why can't I be baptized? So again, this is a this is a pretty fast kind of initiation, but I would say that this guy was ready for it. Yes. Uh, because both Philip and Eunuch would have been thinking of baptism in in the form of Jewish ritual immersion, I would say that the water would have probably have been at least three or four feet deep, and they both went down into it, and. Um, uh, the, the unit would have submerged himself and presumably um, Philip would have done a blessing afterwards or, you know, that sort of thing. David, do we know more precisely what the details of these kind of uh, the Christian baptismal ritual... The earliest Christian mm -hmm. baptisms were um, done in living water. Mm -hmm. um, and the earliest Christian baptismal fonts looked something similar to uh, Jewish ritual emergence, yeah. right? And I think it's not only the Didache, but other Christian documents say it should be living on water. Yeah. Unless it's really cold, and then you can be sprinkled mm -hmm. in the middle of winter. So, mm -hmm. um, uh, but generally it was full immersion. And, uh, yeah. Self-immersion. Yes, self-immersion. And... Uh, with, with no one touching you, because in other words... Without your clothes on. Yeah. Um, and the assumption would be that it was running water, because there, it would have been you know, a natural stream that they had passed with a, a pool big enough, big enough to 
um, for the eunuch to immerse himself. Um, I mentioned verse 37 earlier on, which, and it goes like this. And Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he replied, I believe that Jesus is the son of God. Uh, this is an inserted uh, verse in kind of from several hundred years later. Several hundred, yes, it, and it looks like it's come from a baptismal liturgy somewhere. Somebody wanted thought that the text was not paying sufficient emphasis to the baptism, or maybe wanting to make sure that um, he wasn't about to make the same mistake as happened earlier on in the chapter. Um, so and. Uh, and when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more. But Philip found himself at Azotus, which is uh, Ashdod, on the Mediterranean coast. And as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came up to Caesarea. Which, and Caesarea was the port city on the coast that Herod built, Herod the Great built. And this was the center of the Roman administration. And evidently, Philip settled there. So, because we read about that's where... You know, in 20-odd years later, that's where Luke and Paul are staying with Philip when he's at Caesarea. Uh, but the, the one last thought I want to share with you is just the comparison between um, this, the situation with the Ethiopian eunuch and the situation with Simon, the, the magician. I think it's really nice for Philip's sake that... He wasn't left just with this testimony of this awkward character that didn't really get it, Simon. You have this other situation, which is contrasting in many ways, but it was, it was so on the ball, it kind of makes you smile, that, you know, that he, he had divine assistance to get there. The guy was reading Isaiah 53 and wanting, asking for help on how to, and then the baptism, you know, it, it just... It makes you laugh, really. And so I think it's, it's nice for Philip's sake that he didn't, doesn't have this legacy of the, the person who didn't quite get it right. Um, and he probably enjoyed telling the story, you know, laughing at how the spirit was making it up to him for having, made, having had such a complicated situation in, when he was in Samaria. But also, I mean, it's included there for the valid reason that it tells you actually how the gospel went south. I think this is probably the only indication we have in the scriptures of uh, the gospel being carried to the southern end of the known empire. Yes. Yeah, so. I remember I was going to say, do you think Philip had the egg on his chin then and around the outside? Well, I, I mean... There might have been some people who would have found fault with him that he, you know he needed. I'm sure he was really grateful that Peter and, and John came down. But in re retrospect, you can see, I can see, and lots of other people can, the wisdom of the Lord in this whole setup, and to make sure that the Samaritans were brought on board into the same body without a schism occurring. Uh, so. And the wisdom of the Lord in letting us see um, Philip continuing yeah. as a successful. Yes, and uh, I think it, the, just the Lord poured out this situation for Philip, just to kind of okay. This this thing that just happened then—it's not always going to be that complicated. <laughs> or Luke's um, 
Yeah. Yeah. I think that was it as well, yeah. And, but Luke was keen to explain how the gospel spread to other people groups. So this was a, you know, doing several things at once, you know, honouring his friend Philip and then saying how the gospel ended up down in that bit of Africa. Okay, I think we'll draw it to a close there. Run over about a few minutes, but that's okay. It's a good story. Okay. Thank you so much. Yeah. One of the things I just love the era of the spirit just hooked him. It's like just star trek. Yeah, yeah. It's like so like supernatural. Yeah. Like I mean it's whole day everything. I mean yeah. it's like wow. Yeah, that was a really eventful day for Philip, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, suddenly um, <laughs> that's like it could probably happen. Today. Yeah, it could. And yeah. I, I've heard of some. Happened to me <laughs> <laughs> I've heard of some remarkable situations. I won't go into it now, but you know, people <coughs> traveling around the world in a really surprisingly and fast way. <coughs> interesting, there's no account of Philip. I mean, it would be really interesting to hear Philip's account of this, of this particular story. Yeah. 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 Well, it, he was obviously a bit dazed and taken by surprise, but, think, but, but obviously made a great story in retrospect. Mm -hmm. yes. So it says that Philip, uh, the spirit carried Philip away, but it doesn't say that the eunuch received the spirit. Well, let's just think he does. In Samaria, he mm -hmm. wasn't, the spirit didn't come just with Philip, and here the spirit didn't Yes, but he went on his way rejoicing, so rejoicing is part of what happened in both situations, yeah. in Samaria and uh, with this, uh, this individual. I want to ask, uh, are there, David, uh, you, uh, you preached in the morning about waters being chaos and uh, you know, no, the part sea, of the sea. The sea, the sea, yeah. ah, right. the sea not water. Not water. Living That's water by his life. Right, so it's a symbol of the eternal life. Yeah. Divine life becomes a symbol. Ah, right. What is the difference? Yeah. Between that and the ocean. Yeah. Okay, um, same time next week, uh, chapter 9. Thank you for listening. If you've been blessed by this teaching, let us know by leaving a comment on our Facebook page or leaving a review in iTunes. You can offer practical support to Christ Church Jerusalem by clicking the Donate Now button on our Facebook page. Thank you and blessings from the City of the King.